Hello, my name is Michael Britt. I'm the youth pastor here at Bethel Christian Center. I upload and cut these podcasts each week, and I pray that this is something that has been an encouragement to you. Thank you for your faithfulness in listening to these audio sermon messages. The entire video of these sermons are available online at BethelDurham.com. This specific episode is the beginning of a new teaching sermon series, which I know you will enjoy on the Ten Commandments. And there's a reference to the youth performing a skit you can see online. God bless you. Wow. Now, I'm going to tell you, there's only one thing that would have made that better. Where's Sister Christy? Where's she at? Only one thing would have made that better. The adults have to learn how to do that and do it with them. Everybody in this church should have been doing that. Amen? If we're excited about the Lord, we should be dancing with them. David said he danced before the Lord, but he danced before the Lord with what? All his might. It's okay to get excited about the Lord, especially to be back in church. I, I feel like the psalmist when he said, they said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Feels good to be back. I, uh, this is, I missed three weeks, so I'm just excited to be back. And I mean, the moment that the praise and worship started, I just felt the presence of the Lord. Now, I feel him at home. I have my own personal devotion and worship time, and I hope you do. But it's just something about worshiping collectively and in the presence of the saints. So it's good to be back with you this morning. I want to thank Pastor for um, allowing me to do a series. It's kind of been on my heart. I uh, actually heard the, uh, a teaching series on the Ten Commandments by a pastor I like to listen to, and it really convicted me. And I thought, what a timely message. What a timely series as we look at what's going on in our culture today and how we can tie it directly to God's perfect law. And so I, just, I titled the series... God's, the Ten Commandments, God's guardrails for joyous living. God's guardrails for joyous living. You know, whenever we see commandments or we see scriptures that tell us the things to do or not do, we immediately look at that as something that restricts us. But God wants us to live joyously. And the reason the word guardrails come to mind, I was recently, Tammy and I were in Sedona, Arizona this July, and we were driving in the Red Rock country. And I know some of you have driven in the mountains, and you've ever driven on a road that didn't have a guardrail? That is not a good feeling. It's not. And, you know, and I was driving, and there were some places there where there wouldn't be a guardrail, and Tammy's oohing and on over there about what she's looking at. So I, I take my eyes off the road and try to get a peek, and she's like, keep your eyes on the road. And I'm white-knuckled, you know, because what happens if, we, if there's not a guardrail? We fall off a cliff, don't we? But when that guardrail's there, I can enjoy the drive. I can take a peek over. And yeah, if you get too far over, you're going to bump up against them. And that happens to us in life, don't we? We bump up against God's guardrails, but they're there. And I thank God that they're there. Because if they don't want there, our lives are going to fall off the cliff. And we've seen people's lives fall off the cliff. We've seen, a whole, I think, a whole culture falling off the cliff. Simply because we've abandoned God's perfect moral law and you know what I found interesting and as I thought about this study and as I start this I want to thank uh, Arnetta Herring for coming sister Arnetta and I worked for years on the police department she was a police attorney so and now she's retired and so there she is and I want to thank her for coming and she'll she'll really appreciate this analogy but as I as I thought about this I thought you know we live in a culture that's completely comfortable with this idea of laws and law-breaking and punishment. 
We're quick to say, politicians on both sides are quick to say, we're a nation of laws. I'm not so sure about that anymore on either side. But that's what we say, we're a nation of laws. And we look at our culture and we say, but you know, we're perfectly comfortable. If somebody breaks the law, if I'm the victim or they steal from me, there's a law that they violated. And I want them arrested because they broke the law. And I want them to go before a judge and receive punishment. Don't we? We're, we're comfortable with that and, and adamant about it. But I've heard people say this before. We say, you know, there's a God up there. And the Bible says his law is perfect. And although our law, I think we still have the best system in the world, but it's not perfect because it's administered by imperfect people. But we serve a perfect God and his law is perfect. So there's a God and there's his law. And if we break it, we're going to stand before him for judgment and punishment. You say that in that realm, and people are like, I can't serve a God like that. Have you heard that before? I can't serve a God who would send someone to hell, who would judge them. But you're fine with it in the natural. Because we, we, we like the God of love, and he is a God of love. But he's also a God of justice. He is. And the Bible tells us this is pointing at a man wants to die, and after that, what? The judgment. But he's done something wondrous for us. Because he knew we were going to be a bunch of lawbreakers. It started in the Garden of Eden. And that's where he hatched a plan to send his son to take my sin, to take the wrath of God, the punishment of God, what was due to me, and take it upon himself and say, if you'll come now and you'll put your trust in me, I'll take the punishment of your sin. And I'll set my judgment on my son. And when you stand before me, I won't see your sin. I won't see all your unrighteousness. I'll see the perfect righteousness of my son. And so we're going to go through this study together. And my desire for you is what Psalm 19 and 7 says about the law of God. Psalm 19 and 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. If you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in Christ, my desire is as we go through this study, it's going to be a several-week study. Pastor's going to, I'm going to do a few weeks, and then Pastor has a sermon series as well, and so it's, it's going to be broken up a little bit. Some of the commandments will be combined, but most of them stand on their own. And as we look at these, and as you compare yourself to this perfect law, you'll see that it shows you your need for a Savior. Because what I hope that it does is if you're here and you've never been converted, that this law, the study of this law, will convert your soul. That's my desire. That's always our desire when we come and share God's Word. Is that it convicts your heart and it draws you to the Lord. I've said this before when I preach, you know, if it doesn't speak to me, if it doesn't convict me, it'll never convict you. If it doesn't step on your toes, that proverbial toe-stepping, if it doesn't step on mine, it won't step on yours. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's pounded on mine, so I hope it pounds on yours. But as one, I heard one person say one time, it's not your toes I'm aiming for, it's your heart. It's not your toes God's aiming for, it's your heart. He wants to change your heart. And so let's take a look as we start into this. This is the introduction sermon. It's called The Perfect Law of God. Let's take a look at the introduction. It says, as we look around at our society today, we see the result of neglecting God's perfect law. 
In this age of grace, we do not hear much about the Ten Commandments. Even in church, unless it's in a political conversation about how they should still be in the schools or in the courthouse. Now, I'm not opposed to that notion of them being in the schools and the courthouse. But if there's any one thing that concerns me, and I hear it a lot amongst believers, and, and you've heard pastor when he preached before say certain things, make his britches legs roll up. Well, this is one of those things that makes my britches legs roll up, is when people say, we went wrong when we took prayer out of the schools and we took the Ten Commandments out of the courthouse. I'm not opposed to that notion, church, but that, what you're in essence saying is, the school should change my children, should teach my children in the ways of the Lord. The court should teach people about the ways of the Lord. No, 100%, no, that should be taught in the home. That's God's design, and we'll see that as we go through. I don't want the schools teaching my children about the ways of the Lord. I don't want them to teach them contrary, and that's what I think is happening today, but it is my responsibility as a dad and my wife as a mother to train our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And here's the thing about those Ten Commandments. Jeremiah said this. He said that he would make a new covenant, and I will make a covenant with the house of Israel that in those days I will put my law in their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. If those Ten Commandments, they don't belong on stone tablets. Thank God that's where they were put. But Jeremiah said the day's coming, they're coming off the tablets, and they're coming right here. And if we would get as passionate about them being right here and lived out as such as we did in them being on, on tablets and, and on big stone things in a rotunda, which we'll talk about in a minute, we could change the world. We could have an impact in our culture. Probably the most recent battle and debate, cultural battle around the Ten Commandments came in Justice Judge Roy Moore. Do you remember this? this he was an Alabama Supreme Court justice. It all started in 1995 when Roy Moore was a circuit court judge and he opened his court with prayer and he put a hand-carved wooden plaque of the Ten Commandments in his courtroom. And I thank God for that. And later on, he was elected to the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court and he put a 5,200-pound granite Ten Commandments in the rotunda of the Alabama Supreme Court. Well, that drove ACLU and the atheist mind. They drove them crazy. And I, I okay, I get it. And they come and they sued and all, and they won. And as a result, in 2004, George Roy Moore was expelled from his position as Chief Justice. I hate that. I wish they could stand. I do. And we know that Satan, from the very beginning, has been against God and his word. But the reality of it is, for those of us who would get so passionate about them being on that granite, where they should be most passionate about it is in our hearts and lived out as such in our communities and in our homes. In this study, we'll take a fresh look at God's perfect law and see that as the psalmist wrote, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So let's, take a, let's jump right in and take a look at the, at the law in the Bible. If we're going to talk about law, we have to talk about all the law that is mentioned in the Bible. And there's three types of law mentioned in the Bible. First is the ceremonial law. And it's important, church, do we understand these distinctions? Because if you're going to be a witness for the Lord, and you should be, they're going to hit you with questions about the Old Testament law that you're not going to be able to answer. And I'm going to give you a couple simple ways to do that. I hope you'll write notes on here. So that the next time somebody hits you with something, you don't stand there kind of with that deer in the head like, well, how do I respond to that? Because it's, it's simple. First is the ceremonial law. 
It's instruction on how to worship God. It was given to the nation of Israel. When he had brought them out of Egypt, he had separated them. He wanted to show them and give them rules in how they were to approach him. They included everything on how to build the temple, the requirements of the priest, on the requirements of a perfect lamb and, and an animal that would be sacrificed. You've read all these things. That was the ceremonial laws. And what will happen is when you're trying to witness or you're taking a stand on the moral law, which we'll go through in a minute, people will ask you questions about the ceremonial law because within the ceremonial law were their dietary restrictions on the things they could eat and not eat. Many of the things that God had told Israel not to do was because they had come out of Egypt and the pagan nations did it. He was trying to separate his people from the ungodliness of other nations. But they'll hit you with this. When you start to take a stand on God's moral law, particularly today as it relates to sexuality and life and all the things that all the cultural battles gather around, they'll ask you, well, do you still eat shellfish? Do you eat shrimp? Because the Bible says you couldn't eat that in the Old Testament. And it did. It did say that. And we stand there like, well, what do I say? Why don't those ceremonial laws apply today if they did then? The simple answer to that is this, if they ask you, if they say that to you, all those laws were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All those things was a shadow of what was coming. Why? How did he fulfill them? The Bible gave clear instructions on the requirements of a high priest. If you do a study on that, Jesus filled every one of those requirements. Now we have a great high priest. One and done. No more year after year after year. The requirements of the lamb, the perfect lamb, one and done. The perfect lamb of God. John said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Over. No more year after year after year. The dietary restrictions. Jesus himself fulfilled that in one statement. The disciples, I mean, the, the Pharisees came to him and they were trying to trick him if they always were and they were asking him about ceremonial washings and why him and his disciples didn't do those things anymore. He simply said this. It's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what? It's what comes out. Fulfilled them dietary restrictions. It's no longer whether you eat shellfish or whether you eat a hoofed animal that chews the cud and all those things I can't keep up with anymore. That's not where my evil comes from. It's not an external keeping of a rule. He knows that deep down in that heart. And that's why he, Jeremiah said, I'm going to take them off them tablets and I'm going to put them on your heart. Because that's where the evil is. That's where the wickedness is. But he fulfilled that. So when they ask you that, so Jesus fulfilled that. He said, hey, it's not what goes in that makes us unclean. It's what comes out. And every person right there is going to identify with that. They're going to say, you know, you're right. Because it's the thoughts, my thoughts, my motives, everything. He searches the heart. All of this was about access to God. How the children of Israel, and now us, got access to God. And when Jesus was crucified, when he hung on that cross, the Bible says that the ground began to shake. That the temple mount began to shake. And in that temple, there was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies, which only the priest could go to on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for our sins. It, it signified the separation between man and God, that veil did. 
And when he hung there and said, it is finished, that Bible says that veil began to tear. And it tore. And now I can and you can. We can walk right into, Hebrews says we can walk right into the presence, boldly into the presence of God and make our requests known to him. I don't go through a priest anymore. I do go through a priest, the great high priest, but it's over. I don't have to do that anymore. I can do it in my living room. I do it in my living room. I do it in my bonus room. I do it in my car at times with a worship song. I have perfect access to God through Christ. Fulfilled. The ceremonial laws have been fulfilled through Christ. The civil laws. Next is the civil laws. They were given for everyday society. They're much like our statutory laws. They manage the civil affairs of the day. Look, and some of them were kind of kooky. I, I, I want to I read a few of them to you. Let me just read a couple of these civil laws to you. Number one, a man could not share a chair with a woman when it was during her time of the month. man couldn't share a chair. They couldn't eat bats, which I don't know why you want to eat a bat anyway, but they couldn't eat bats. Look, lethal force, and Sister Arnetta, you this, this kind of goes along some with some of our laws. Lethal force was only acceptable at night. There's a distinction between in our, in our laws between a burglary in the day and a burglary at night. So it was only acceptable at night. And, and, and I thank God, I, I don't know how many MMA or UFC people I have out here, but God, God was ahead of us way before all that stuff. He said, if two men are fighting... And a woman steps in to help her husband. She can't grab the man below the belt. That is an Old Testament law. But those applied to Israel at that time. And there's many others. And there's some that's not that bizarre. They just managed. They were under a theocracy. God himself ruled Israel. And he gave them rules. Everything from property ownership. Everything, just like our statutory laws today. And you might say, well, why, why such weird laws? Well, I want to read to you a few laws that's still on the books in our nation today. They're either on the books and not enforced, or they've been repealed. In case we think that Israel was the only one that might have had some weird laws. You know, in Iowa, it's illegal for a man with a mustache to kiss a woman in public. In Virginia, it's illegal for a man to kick a woman out of bed. In Kentucky, a woman cannot remarry the same man more than three times. I hope that doesn't apply to anybody in here. In Honolulu, Hawaii, it's illegal to sing loudly after sunset. Now, this is an interesting one. I never tried this when I was working. In Ohio, policemen are allowed to bite a dog if they think it'll calm the dog down. And lastly, in Arizona... If you're found stealing soap, you must wash yourself until the bar of soap has been completely used up. Those are laws. They're on our books. So the nation of Israel wasn't the only one who had some strange laws. Why don't we enforce these laws anymore? I mean, if they're going to use that argument against us, then we should still enforce these laws. They don't apply anymore. It's just that simple. With ceremonial laws, civil laws, they just don't apply anymore. They were for a specific time, for a specific purpose. But that's not the case with the moral law. The Ten Commandments that convict of sin and give instruction in holiness. 
those two commandments really boil down to a couple things. Primarily, number one, which is something we're losing in the Western evangelical church, and it's the idea of lordship. Somehow we've gotten this strange idea that we like Jesus as our Savior. We're not so much going to take him as our Lord. It's a package deal, church. If he's not your Lord, he's not your Savior. And it boils down to biblical worldview. We've heard that terminology a lot. It's incredible to me as I look at some of the statistics that are happening today as it relates to people who identify themselves as Christians or and then they ask them certain questions about God's work. Even recently, I think this was in Crossway I saw this, they said it was as high as 42% of people who identified as Christians who said there was more than one way to heaven. Well, number one, I'm going to tell you, they're not a follower of the Lord. We, we can disagree on a lot of things and some minor points of doctrine, but what we can't disagree on is who Jesus is. Because he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father through me. That's either all true or it's all a lie. There's no middle ground. And I know in our tolerant community culture, this idea that Jesus is the only way doesn't go over well, but that is the facts. But how do we present that? We present that with a heart of love and a heart of come know the Savior. But it, is, it boils down to lordship and a biblical worldview. So what I want to do now, I want to read Exodus 20, 1 through 17. I want to read this rendering of our moral law. So if you want to read along with me, if you have your Bibles or if you have your phones, or it'll be on the screen. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. Nor shall you not bow down to them nor serve them. For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor your male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. I thank God for his law. So let's take a look at it. First, it was given to God by Moses to set his people apart. And it's still what it's for today. 
We as the people of God are to be set apart. That's what holy means. It means to be set apart. 1 Peter 2 and 9, Peter talking to the church there said, you're a chosen generation. This is us today, church. We're part of the family of God. We've been grafted in through Christ. So now we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are set apart. Sister Christie, when she was still teaching at Riverside, there was a young man that played baseball there, and he worked out at the gym where I was at. And I was talking to him, and he, you could tell something special about this guy, and I was asking about Sister Christie, and he, he spoke highly of her. And So I saw her here, and I asked her about him. I said, look, he plays baseball there at Riverside. I think he's going to be playing at Duke. And Christie said this, just, just that quick. I've never heard somebody explain, describe that way. She says, uh, yeah, he's set apart. And I was like, whoa, I like that saying. She had seen something in him that looked different from all the other students. Are you set apart? Do people, do you look different? And you know what I mean when I say look? Do you value the things the world values? Do you, do you talk the way they talk? Do you do the things they do? Or are you set apart? God's law was given to set us apart. It still applies to our lives today. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to do what? Fulfill it. As a matter of fact, he made it more restrictive. They were always trying to trick him with something, and they came to him and said, well, Lord, which is the greatest commandment? And he narrowed it down to two. You should love the Lord thy God with all their heart, their mind, and their soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. He took the first four, would have to do with man's, God, man's relationship to God, and he put it in that, that first one. And then the last six is man's relationship to man. And he made them much more restrictive, as we'll see when we go through. You know, he said things like, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say, you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you committed adultery. He does the same thing with murder and many other things. He's taken them off those stones. He's put them in our heart. He's put them in our thoughts. And they're reminded to us through his Holy Spirit, and we're convicted over them. They still apply to our lives today. I love this scripture. Look at C under number two. They shut the mouth of the sinner, showing all are guilty before God. How many of you have ever done this? Have you ever, uh, when you were young, your parents are getting on you about something or telling you to do something, and you're trying to make excuses, and they say this to you? Shut your mouth. That's happened to me many times. I'm, you know, I'm talking back, and my, my dad or mom would say, shut your mouth. And I, and I shut up. Because I know what's coming if I don't. Well, you know, that's kind of what Paul is talking about in Romans. He says this in Romans 3.19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Those who are under the law are those who think they can be self-righteous by keeping it. So the question for you and me, are you under the law? Are you trying to keep all these external rules and regulations? Are you under it? This is for the self-righteous. That every mouth might be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. For those who think they can be self-righteous, can justify themselves, we are all guilty before God. Every single one of us. He shuts the mouth of the sinner. It makes us conscious of sin. In the very next verse in Romans 3.20... 
Paul says, therefore, by the deeds of the flesh, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's how I know what sin is. Because the law tells me what sin is. If you, certainly if you're not doing the Bible plan, I'll give you three books that you could read as we go through this series that will complement it for you. Romans. Read the book of Romans. Read the book of Galatians. And read the book of Hebrews. As we go through this study of the Ten Commandments. They make us conscious of sin. It's a tutor that drives us to the Savior. In Galatians 3.24, Paul writing to that church says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Because when you start to compare yourself to this law and all its implications, you're going to see that you fall short. You're going to see that if you die under the law and you've never put your trust in Christ, that your only way you're not going to be justified. Justified is a legal term. It's God declaring us righteous when we come to his son. And what that law does, when I compare myself to all its commands, it drives me to the cross. It drives me to a savior. And the next day instruct in righteousness. See, I, I think we think, okay, well, I come to the Lord. He forgives me of my sins so that so the law doesn't apply anymore. Yes, it does. Because once we come to him, we su- submit ourselves to him. What does the law do then? What's its purpose? It's to instruct us in righteousness. How do we live now? Now we know. Now we've been redeemed. How do we live? How do, how do, we, how do we be set apart? The purpose of the law is the same as it was when he gave the children of Israel. To set us apart. So we look different. Understanding the moral law. The commandments are God's specific revelation of himself to his people. Commandments are the only part of the Bible written by God himself. A lot of people think God wrote the Bible. God didn't write the Bible. The Bible said, the word tells us that the Bible was written by holy men when they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit superintended the entire writing of the Bible. But God himself wrote the Ten Commandments. The finger of God on a stone. The moral principles are timeless and could be seen in action prior to Sinai. Prior to the giving of the law. You could see the principles of them. We found that in the story of Noah. If you remember Noah, Noah got drunk. He sinned and got drunk. And he had three sons. And one son went and made fun of him. And the other two sons said, what are you doing? And the son that went and made fun of him, the Bible says there was a curse in his life and in his generations. We see the principle of honoring our mother and our father in that. Cain and Abel, we see the principle of murder. And then when God was given the manna from heaven, he told me, he said, look, on the sixth day, you you get a double portion. Because on the seventh day, you rest. We see the idea of the Sabbath. So the principles of God and his Commandments are timeless. We see those in action even before the giving of the law. And although most are stated negatively, there is also a positive implication. All but two are thou shalt not. All but two are thou shalt not. But there is a positive implication to every one. So what's the positive implication of them? We'll look at each one as we go through them. Uses of the moral law. Social. They were strict men 
from sin. How many of our laws are tied directly into the moral law? Murder, stealing, lying. So many of our laws are foundational in God's moral law. And God uses the government. That's why we see he tells us to obey the government. Because they bear the sword. Because God uses the government to restrict sin. That is not a best way to restrict it. The best way to restrict it is to change that heart. But we have to have external restrictions, don't we? Because if we don't, I just finished doing some reading and studying in the book of Judges. Where it says there was no king and everyone did who was right, did what was right in their own eyes. It seems a little bit that's where our own culture is going. And you get chaos if you don't have standards and laws. They convict, they restrain men from sin. Next, they're convictional. They convict us of our sin. I've mentioned that. And then they're instructional. They instruct us in righteousness. So whenever you're talking about the law, particularly the Old Testament law, somebody's going to say, but what about grace? I mean, we're not under the age of law anymore. We're in the age of grace. What about grace? The Apostle Paul talking to the church at Rome, he, he knew about that. He knew that as soon as you start talking about grace and not being under law anymore, he knew what the sin nature would do. And anytime you do a study like this, as I go through a study like this, there's always hard to find a proper balance between legalism and license. Legalism and license. Legalism is one of those that's always pounding you with the rules, with the rules, with the rules, with the rules. I kind of grew up like that a little bit. And it was hard for me to get a proper idea of who God was as a heavenly father. We've had some conversation recently in the church office about this idea of salvation and can we lose it? Do you lose it? Because what we want you to do, church, and what I want to do, and I struggle with this sometimes, I want to rest in my salvation. God don't want me always wondering whether I'm lost, saved, lost, saved, lost, saved. That'll make you a spiritual loon. And we feel like that sometimes. But I, as a leader in the church and as God, we don't want you comfortable in your sin neither. And neither does God. But if you've come and you've put your trust in him, I wish I could tell you, look, you're never going to struggle with the sin again. Everything's going to be wonderful. There's people who will tell you that the moment you sin and you, you've disappointed God and you've lost your salvation. That's not scriptural. Right. What kind of father is that? I know we have some fathers in here. What kind of father is that? And he loves perfectly. I don't love perfectly. But at the same time, I think the pendulum has swung too far the other way. And we're saying, oh, it's okay. Go do whatever you want to do. That's not, that's certainly not scripture. If I had to lean one way or the other, and I still do, I lean more toward the legal side. And I think that's probably a safer place to be as long as it's not over the top. You can get into two extremes on anything. But as I go through this, I'm going to try to find that proper balance between legalism and license. And you've got camps out there. You got churches out here today, they've just abandoned God's word. He got it wrong. God got it wrong in sexuality. He got it wrong in life. God's never gotten it wrong, and he'll never get it wrong. Amen. I had a conversation with a guy a few years ago, and we were talking about some things, and he said, well, you know, things are changing, you know. Maybe, maybe people need to kind of, the Bible needs to change. I was like, brother, that ain't the way it works. Uh-uh. That's never the way it worked. And that ain't just now. You look, if you look back at the uh, New Testament and the cultures where Paul was talking, they were ungodly. We think this is new. It's not new. 
We've just in America enjoyed a long, long run of people being very open to the scriptures and what the scriptures teach about things. And we're seeing that change. And I have a feeling that what's about to happen is God's going to separate the wheats from the tares, not in a rapture sense, but the people who are really in this because they love and trust him and are willing to follow him and those who are just in here just to hang around it. Because this might go, we've, been, we've been doing uh, a study, if you've been here on Wednesday night, with David Jeremiah about where we go from here and covering things like socialism and cancel culture. And we see those things playing out. It's about to get, a, I think, a bumpy ride for us. But he's worth the ride. Because the ending is wonderful. But I'll do my best to find that balance between legalism and license. But Paul, knowing that, the nature of man hasn't changed. He said, the moment I get out here and I tell these folks, look, you're not under the grace, you're not under law anymore. You don't have to keep all these laws to be made right with God. The moment he did that, people are going to say, hey, great, then I'm just going to go out and sin. I don't have to worry about this anymore. And this is what Paul said because he knew that's what they were going to say. In Romans 6, 1 and 2, he said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do I just go out here and sin all I want because the grace can abound now? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Notice that term, live in it. The Bible uses that term a lot, live in it. It uses the word practice a lot. Are you living in sin? Are you practicing sin? If you are, you probably need to really do a real soul check before you leave here today. There was a guy that, someone passed away recently that was very close to me. This has been a few months ago. I had worked with him. And he had retired and he sent me a thing and said, I, I retired. And I said, I'm glad to hear that. And I was like, let's get together and have lunch. Because I knew I just, I wanted to talk to him about his soul. But like everything else, things that don't matter that much get in the way. And I never made that happen. And a, and a month or so ago, he passed away. Young man. And when I heard that news, I felt very convicted. But I want you to know, church, we want you to know that you put your trust in Christ and repented of your sin. Because grace empowers us to keep the law, not as an excuse to break the law. Get a different idea of grace. Some people have taken the grace, and you hear terms, you hear terms today like hyper-grace or greasy grace. That's, grace isn't an excuse for us to sin. Grace empowers us to not sin. And the longer, I wish I could tell you that you were going to have, you come to the Lord, you're going to have your best life now, and everything's going to be wonderful, and it's going to be easy road. That's not true. <laughs> that is not true. I think if you talk to Pastor Don, he'll tell you that's not true. It's not a miserable life either. It's a wonderful life. But there's things we still struggle with in our life. But the more, you st the, the more you stay in God's word, stay around God's people, feed the spirit and not the flesh, the easier it gets. It does. I'll tell you, particularly you young people, it's harder on some things when you're younger. I know. I was young once, believe it or not. Pastor Don was young once, believe it or not. And that's why sometimes we can sit down and say, we know it's hard. We know there's sometimes that flesh pulls so hard on us. There's a, uh, a book that was, I, I, I tried to find it in the prayer room early, uh, earlier this week. I, I'm not sure what happened to it, but it was in there at one time. And it was why good men are tempted. And, and it said this in there as I was reading it. And it said that um, 
there is a point of no return. Now, I'll deal with this some more when we get into the family. The, I'm, I'm going to deal with honoring your mom and your dad and not committing adultery together under the umbrella of the, of the biblical family. But it said there's, there's a point of no return. You can be as spirit-filled, tongue-talking as you want to, but if you get yourself in certain situations, there's a point of no return. And the scripture he uses it, the carnal mind, it's hostile to God. And you get yourself in a certain position, and you ain't coming back from that. And you're going to find yourself in something you didn't ever plan to be in. And I think that's why Joseph, when Potiphar's wife grabbed him and said, come lay with me, he got out of his coat and ran and said, oh, I can't be in here no more. Sometimes that's what you need to do. You need to know what your weaknesses are. God's given us a, a mind. And many of the times when we sin, we think it's, oh, the devil made me do it. That's ultimately always true. But that passes right through your will. And you made a conscious decision. Because probably the whole time it was going on, that spirit was already knocking on the door saying, mm-mm, 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 mm-mm. And you're what? Ignoring it, ignoring it, ignoring it. That's grace. That's grace saying, no, 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 no. Don't put yourself in that situation. It's grace. And lastly, to me, Brother Matt, you guys can come on up. To me, one of the most sobering scriptures in the Bible, when I read it and how it's written in its context, is found in Hebrews 10 and 29, dealing with this same idea of using grace to sin. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says. It's a question. It's a question. I'm going to ask you a question. It says this. Oh, how much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. And insulted the Spirit of grace. When we take God's word... And we take his spirit of grace and we say, I'm going to use it to sin. I'm going to use it to live any way I want to live. When I think about doing that, I get an image of myself. Maybe you don't. But I get an image of myself walking right up to the foot of the cross while Jesus is hanging there and that blood's being spilled and just stepping all over. And I don't ever want to do that. I don't ever want to do that. That's not why he died. He died because he loved me. He died because he knew there's a law out there that I can't keep and he died to take the penalty of my sin and your sin and now I want to come to him and I want to, I've asked him to forgive me of my sin, I said Lord I can't, I can't keep your law I know I can't I've broken it and James said if you've broken one part of it, you've broken it all that's what it says so if you've told a lie, just a straight up lie you've murdered we don't ever look at it that way the hardest thing of witnessing the people today, and uh, Chris and Kristen will tell you this, the hardest way of witnessing the people today is they don't see themselves as sinful. I'm, they're a good person. If you went out to South Point today and you asked people if they were going to heaven or hell, you, you interviewed, I don't know, 100 people, the vast majority of them said, I'm going to heaven. Well, why? I'm a good person. <laughs> it's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that the heart of man is desperately wicked, which includes mine. 
and only God can know it. And then they would say, well, I've never murdered anybody. They always go straight to the most serious ones. And, and, and as we go through this study, you'll see that when you're talking to someone, witnessing someone, they always go to the extreme right away when you're trying to witness to them. And I want to say this as, as I talk about witnessing and using God's law. Several years ago, Ray Comfort and um, Kirk Cameron did a whole evangelistic series on how to witness to someone using the Ten Commandments. And you ask them questions. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever done this? And that's okay. But my son Colin told me something one time. I never forgot it. He said, I don't ever want to start an evangelistic counter with what someone's doing or not doing. Because people are going to rebel against that. I want to start an evangelistic encounter about maybe what Christ has done for me. And what he can do for them. Because when you come to people and you start pointing out everything, typically they'll put up a wall. But the reality of it is, God's law is perfect. And it still converts the soul. Would you stand? We close our service. I don't know if we have other than Sister Ornette and her friend. We close our service around the altar. But if you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in Christ, you're under the law. You know we run down through those commandments. You say, man, I've broken every one of those things. All of us have in some way. If you've never put your trust in the Lord, today's today. Today's the day of salvation. The altar is open. So if you'd like to come down here, someone will meet you down here and pray with you.